All right, our scripture can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is Romans 1, 18 through 32, as we continue through the book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Probably all of us are familiar with the phrase, Houston, we have a problem. It was uttered from the uh, command module of Apollo 13 on April 14, 1970 by Jim Lovell. At the time, uh, the space, uh, the astronauts did not know the exact problem. There was a pressure sensor in the oxygen tanks that was malfunctioning, and so they decided to stir the tanks. Really don't understand what that means. But 95 seconds later, there was a big bang, and the electrical power fluctuated, and the firing control thrusters, uh, thrusters activated. The oxygen tank in the service module had uh, ruptured, disabling the uh, electrical and life support systems. It took a while for them to figure out the exact cause, but they knew there was a problem right when they heard the bang. See, they have... To, they had to figure out the problem before they could fix it. And it's the same thing with humanity, right? We can apply this exact same phrase, Earth, we have a problem. Everybody in our world understands that we have a problem. We can see it manifested in how we treat each other, the problems of war and death and hatred and greed. We can see it in ourselves. It was Henry David Thoreau that said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Many 
among us live lives without purpose or meaning or significance. And we all experience this onward march toward decay and death of our bodies. We know that there is a problem. But the problem is we keep misidentifying the problem. We believe that the issue can be solved politically or educationally or financially. But the reality is we cannot solve the problem because we first don't own the problem. It was Walt Kelly that said that we have met the enemy and it is us. And so to solve this problem, we must first figure it out. And that is exactly what Paul is doing in this passage, what he will be doing all the way up till chapter 3, verse 21. Paul is in Romans 1.16, laid out the gospel, that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. But before he goes into the solution and unpacks this reality, he has to show the problem. And so Paul begins here by identifying the problem with brutal accuracy. He shows us that the problem is not financial or educational or monetary. It's a spiritual problem. That mankind has chosen to deny God his rightful place as each one of our God and to worship other things instead. And all of humanity's and our misery stems from this choice. And Paul is speaking to each one of us. None of us are exempt from the indictment in which Paul is about to give. And so to embrace the solution, we must first individually own the problem. That we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie at some point in our life. And it is only Jesus that can free us from our evil exchange through his exchange of himself for us. And so let us acknowledge this problem and own it. Paul breaks down uh, in three different sections here what our problem is. And here they are. Number one, that all of us knows there's a God. Number two, that we all exchange God for something else. And number three, that this exchange is what is killing us. But he does give us, number four, some hope. And we'll turn to that at the very end of the sermon. But let's examine these points. Number one, that all of us knows that there is a God. Romans 1.18, he starts out and says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul shows us that mankind is under a sentence, that we have the wrath of God upon humanity. And this wrath of God is against our ungodliness and unrighteousness, namely our lack of love for one another and for God himself. Now, people look at this passage and they think, well, God is just throwing a temper tantrum, that God is capricious. But it's not that way at all. Think about it this way. The better the person that you are, the more that you hate that which is wrong. Right? If you know somebody who's a, a really good person who you respect, they have a very sensitive conscience. They, they get angry when things are wrong and unjust. 
Well, if they're like that, God is infinitely good. And an infinitely good person is infinitely angry about evil. Any evil. Even something as small as a selfish thought. You know, when we think about a selfish thought and we have them all the time, we think to ourselves, well, it's not that big a deal, right? It's not a big deal to us because we are not infinitely holy and good. But to God, it is a big deal. See, God's wrath centers around our sin, not just our sins. That selfish thought, these these manifestations of humanity are symptoms of a deeper problem. Much like when you have a cold and you have all these manifestations, you have to look inside to what the problem is. And the problem is this, in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, so that men are without excuse. See, God has communicated and is communicating all the time through general revelation to all of us, through creation, this testimony to his presence and his power. That there is no one on the face of the earth that is not receiving this message, this testimony, this eyewitness to the existence of God. It says here, this word that uh, it speaks about the things that have been made by God. This word made is the word poema, from where we get the word poetry. That the creation of the world is God's artwork. It's God's handiwork. And like an artist, God has signed his artwork. He signs creation so that we look at creation and we know the author of creation. So what this passage is telling us is that everybody knows that there is a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. Only people who claim to be atheists. And it's obvious, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. See, a sunrise isn't just a sunrise. The ocean isn't just the ocean. A newborn baby is not just a newborn baby. There are all ways in which God is communicating to us that I am God and worthy of your worship. He's always communicating to us. And he's showing us when we look at ourselves, as it says in Acts 17.25, that he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It is God that gives us, like he gives to creation, our existence. And he is the one who we owe our existence to. But what we do is we hold down the truth. This word, hold down or suppress, it means to smother or to restrain. To operate in such a way that our consciences don't even see or acknowledge his existence. Notice in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, or give thanks to him. 
It's funny when you look at that, give thanks. Are you telling us that the problem with creation is that we're simply not polite? No, it's more than that. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of identity theft or phishing, P-H-I, phishing. And phishing is when you go ahead and you try to entice someone to download something onto your computer. And when you download on, uh, that onto the computer, this piece of malware activates. And it instantly reaches into your computer and takes all your information. It takes your identity, if you will. And now this person assumes your identity and your assets and begins to use what is yours, even though it doesn't belong to them. It's a big lie. And that's exactly what we do. We take that which does not belong to us without acknowledging who it does belong to and claim it as our own. Because we claim to be wise. We're wiser than God. We can do it better than him. We can manage our lives much better, and so we don't need him. You see, all of us know that there is a God. And so the first step that we have to take is this, that we must face reality. That each one of this, whether you are a Christian or not, has at some point done this to God. Suppress the truth of his lordship because you and I want to be in control. We must recognize, one, that we have all done this to God, but two, we don't belong to ourselves. The God who is the creator and sustainer of all life, including my life, deserves my worship and my thanks because he is God and we are not. This leads me to my second point, that all of us have exchanged God for something else. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie. Now notice this, the Bible only gives us two options. There's not a possibility of not worshiping something. It's really a question of what we worship, the true God or something else. You see, human beings don't just live. We live for something. Every single one of us, if you're alive, is living for something. Because we are derived beings. We owe our existence to someone else. And so something has to be the deepest place for your hopes. There's something out there that you count on that makes you significant, that makes you somebody, that you give your highest allegiance to. And that is what you worship. For every single one of us is living for something. And the Bible is telling us that at some point in our life, all of us have exchanged the one true God for an idol. We may be doing it right now. For statues, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, back in the old days, we had, uh, they were idols and they were statues and they were 
figures, and not just in the old days. If you go, for instance, into India and uh, practice uh, those who practice Hinduism, there's millions of idols, millions of statues, these images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice that they're mortal. They're corruptible. It's either an animal or an image of a man. But the reality is that idols can be anything, can't they? You don't need to have a statue to worship something. We see here that sexual desires can be idols. Notice in verse 26 and 27, he highlights uh, homosexual desires. And I think the reason he's highlighting them is their contrariness to the natural order. But lest we think that this is one particular class or category of people, the bad people, heterosexual desires can be idols as well, can they not? Indeed, sex in the, uh, in the aspect of marriage can become an idol if you make it the ultimate thing in your life. In Colossians 3.5, Paul tells us that greed is idolatry. It can be. It is idolatry. In Galatians 4.21, he tells us that the law, trusting in the Mosaic law, is idolatry. See, religion and church can become an idol just as much as an illicit sexual desire. Because idolatry is looking to something to give you hope, significance, and meaning more than God. It's when we value something more than God and his grace. Indeed, sin is what you do when you are not satisfied in God. Now, the biggest problem with an idol is it's hard to see what it is when you're in the midst of it. For instance, let's say that your idol is greed. It's money. But it's not really the money. It's what you actually are doing or valuing with the money. For instance, one person accumulates money and never spends it. They hoard it. They sit on it. They accumulate it. They look at the number in their bank account. See, the idol isn't the money itself. It's the security that it provides. That I have enough money to be safe because my security is in what I have. But you have another person who tries to accumulate money and they never can hold on to it because they're always spending it. Cars, houses, clothing, uh, going out. Because their goal with their use of their money is to win the approval of their friends that are around them. See, the idol isn't the money. It's the approval that they need from everyone else around them to feel good about who they are. See, we have to understand first that we have exchanged God for idols. But then we need to examine what is the idol that is pulling at my heart. If you are not a Christian, you have to worship something. So what is it? Follow the string all the way to the end, and you will find what it is 
that you have set your heart's desire on. Someone once said, if you want to know what your idols are, don't look at your dreams. Look at your nightmares. Look at the nightmare that you have if you lose this thing. If you no longer have it, if it's no longer yours, that is what you are holding on to. But if you are a Christian, if you do understand and know that God is the one true God who is worthy of all worship, what is it that is tempting me? What's pulling on my heartstrings and what's behind it? We must learn to monitor our heart. If I'm angry, asking ourselves the question, is there something that I have to have or possess or else I can't be satisfied? If I find myself being fearful and anxious, asking the question, is there something else that I must have or possess or I can't be satisfied other than God and his son, Jesus Christ? If I'm bored Is there something that I must possess or have or I can't be satisfied? Monitoring and watching our heart and our behavior and asking the question, how is this emotion or action being caused by placing an inordinate hope in something or someone to give me what only Jesus Christ can give? This brings me to my third point. That this exchange of an idol for God is what's killing us. There's a saying that you must be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. I think it was Oscar Wilde that said, when God wants to punish us, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. See, notice what happens here in verse 24, 26, and 28. We see the same phrase that God gave them up. He gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to their uh, dishonorable passion, and it led to a dishonorable passions and debased minds. In other words, sin and idols is God saying, this is what you want, go ahead. But there's a consequence of worshiping something other than the one true God. We see that they, and we become futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts become darkened. See, something happens to us when we worship something other than the one true God. It begins to dominate your heart. In Romans 1.24, it says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. And this word lust is the word epithumeo. Thumeo is uh, the word that means desire. But epi is a preposition. It means an over and above. So you could translate it as hyper-desire. The kind of desire that's over the top. The kind of desire that burns you out. It's the same kind of desire like that of an animal. I have a a dog, a a Boykin Spaniel named Pepper. Pepper was designed to fetch. Okay, he's a he's a he's a a retriever. And uh, when Pepper, when you throw a ball, Pepper will go get that ball, and he 
is focused on one thing, that ball and that ball alone. You see, if I throw that ball and that ball rolls under my backyard fence, Pepper is going to go to that fence and he's going to stay there. And he's going to start whining. And he has one thing that he wants and he can't get it. And it's driving him crazy. He has an epithumeo, a hyper desire. See, when you have a hyper desire for that which you should not, your will becomes enslaved to it. Your mind becomes enslaved to it. You have to have it, and you will do anything for it. But you see, it's not real. You will become like the idol that you worship. In Psalm 135, God says the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. These idols have mouths but do not speak, eyes but they do not see, ears but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. See, ask an alcohol, alcoholic if they can stop. The answer, of course, is of course I can. I am the master of it. But the reality is they cannot see their addiction. They cannot see that they cannot stop. That they are beholden to it and they are living a lie and they don't even know it. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? For we all have experienced this in our lives. You see something and you have to have it. If I just had that, you say, that all will be well. And so it dominates you. And you experience anger in the present if you can't have it. Or anxiety for the future if you might lose it or never get it. Or guilt in the past for letting it get away. See, my friends, we must recognize that the idols that we worship are killing us. They don't bring life. They bring pain and frustration. And so we must identify them and renounce them. In your heart is a temple. It's a small room, an imaginary room, and in it resides a throne. And on that throne is either the Lord Jesus Christ or something else. And we're bowing down to that. Jesus is the only master who can give us freedom. Everything else will enslave us. And so we must stop worshiping idols. Well, how do we do that? This brings me to my final point. That's easier said and done. There's a reason that these things have their grip on us. And Paul is going to get into that. When we get into chapter 3, we're going to go into all of the aspects and the beauty of the gospel. We do have to take our medicine, if you will, until chapter 3. But here, he brings up, in this passage, hope. He brings up that the solution 
is in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. All of these problems come because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, the reason we are designed this way, my friends, is because there is one who is worthy of our hearts, our worship, our hyper-desire that does not burn us out, but rather fills us up. There is one on whom we can set our hopes, and our hearts will not be darkened, and we will not lose ourselves, but rather we will find ourselves. And it's God's Son, Jesus Christ. The only way to stop worshiping other things is to worship the right thing. And in the gospel, we see something. We see a God who gave himself over to sin that we might be freed from the sin of idolatry. We see it all over the gospel. For instance, in Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, by giving him over in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In Ephesians 5.25, we are counseled husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself over for her. It's Jesus Christ who exchanged his life for you and me, that we might exchange our idols for him. That we might set our epithumeo on the love of God in Jesus Christ. I love Paul in Philippians 3, who says, Whatever was to my gain, I count as lost, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. It's in the cross, as we focus our desire onto him, we discover that neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we are to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on this earth, for we have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. And Christ is our life. We have a hyper desire. And we will set it on something. When we set it on Jesus Christ. When we peer deeply into him. And what he's done for us. And who he is to us. And how he loves us. We find a passion and love that is worthy of all of our hearts, that indeed feels the same way about us as we feel about him. How can we be freed from this dark exchange? It is to give ourselves to the one who exchanged himself for us 
on the cross that we might have life in him and him alone. Houston, we have a problem, but heaven has brought a solution. His name is Jesus Christ. Fix your hyper desire on him and you will find the satisfaction which your heart so desperately craves. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you that you are worthy of all of the greatness and fullness of our heart, the emptiness of our heart, I should say. For in you we find life and love and significance and purpose and meaning and consolation and graciousness. Let us not be satisfied with anything else rather than you, our Lord and Savior, for you are worthy of all of our obsession. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.